0: You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from the Denver Voice, Denverite, and Westward. From the Denver Voice, I'll be reading... Inside the Denver Tenant Power Movement, by Robert Davis. From Denverite, I'll be reading, Meet the Denver Animal Shelter's First Social Worker. Her job is to help people keep their pets well cared for and at home, by Isaac Vargas. And, This affordable health center just expanded its dental pharmacy offerings. Now it wants to show it off with a block party, by Desiree Matherin. From Westward, I'll be reading, Here for the Kids Moves on from Colorado and White Women by Benjamin Neufeld and Group Pushing Denver Nightmare Changing Its Name Diving into Safety Solutions by Katie Cheshire I'll finish up the hour with other articles from Westward This first article is from the Denver Voice Inside the Denver Tenant Power Movement by Robert Davis Abigail Espino started organizing a tenant union at the Edge 26 apartment complex in Edgewater after the landlord Tryon Properties, a multi-family real estate investment firm headquartered in Hollywood, California, increased her rent by more than 55% from $900 to $1400 per month. She said she had also heard from Hispanic families at the complex that white families were getting their maintenance issues first sometimes a month or two ahead of Hispanic families that filed similar work tickets. Some Hispanic families even resorted to fixing their own dishwashers and showers because of it, Espino added. Some households, like Espino's, lived without hot water for a week or more last winter, she said. Those testimonies hit home for Espino, who told Denver Voice that part of the issue was that Tryon didn't have someone in the front office who spoke Spanish. I couldn't believe that some people were living like that and the apartment managers weren't doing anything to fix it, Espino said. So the Edge 26 tenants started organizing a union with the help of Edgewater Collective, a local nonprofit organization. They showed up to city council meetings and told the community about their living conditions. At first, Espino said a lot of people showed up and that seemed to push Tryon to hire an employee who spoke Spanish. But then attendance at the tenant meetings started to dwindle. Espino said she suspected people stopped coming because the union couldn't address the community's main concern, rent increases. We are here to help, but there are some things that we just can't address. And unfortunately, rent is one of them, Espino said. Espino's situation at Edge 26 is similar to the experiences that many tenants in Denver face as the city's multifamily market continues to soar. Commercial real estate firm Marcus & Milchap's Q2 2023 Denver Multifamily Market Report found that the city's 90% rent payment fulfillment rate and high average yields continue to draw out-of-state investors to the market. Out-of-state investors accounted for nearly half of all transactions over the last 12 months, and that investment activity is one reason why the city's average rent has increased by more than 28% since March of 2020, up to nearly $2,000 per month, according to the report. Tryon Properties is just one company that sees huge profit potential in the Denver metro area's multifamily market. Since 2020, Tryon has acquired properties such as The View at North Peak Apartments, a 288-unit community in North Glen, for $38 million, the 402-unit Terra Village in Edgewater, which was later rebranded as Edge 26, four hundred and nine million million, and a 198-unit complex in Aurora called Trail Point on Highline for about $28 million. Tryon also offers its more than 1,200 investors an average internal return rate of 18% over the 18-plus years that the company has been operating, according to its website. Denver Voice reached out to Tryon Properties for comment about the allegations made against the company but did not receive a reply before press time. Some tenants also say that the staggering rent increases some landlords are instituting are putting them at risk of losing their homes. Denver led the nation with a 71% gap between the local median rents and household income between 2009 and 2021, according to a recent study by Which, a subsidiary of the real estate platform Clever, In turn, tenants across the Denver metro area have formed unions to try and slow rent increases and provide better living conditions for renters. Although many of the issues these unions are trying to address exist at the individual building level, some union organizers say the organizations are driven by the same issues, namely that local lawmakers seem eager to engage tenants about the issues they face but don't show the same enthusiasm when it comes to passing legislation that could stop the issues from happening in the first place. There seems to be a lack of awareness from the people in power who are oftentimes not renters themselves. Shannon Hoffman, a member of Denver's Democratic Socialist Party and former City Council candidate, told Denver Voice in an interview, they're not in close proximity to the people who are facing eviction who are, or who are unable to pay rent, and that precludes them from being able to see the human side of the issue and making the link between a lack of affordable housing and the increasing rates of homelessness that we're seeing. The roots of the frustrations some Denver renters feel predate the coronavirus pandemic, but the events seemingly served to exacerbate their concerns. Rents followed the demand for non-congregate shelter upwards at a startling pace. At the same time, Low-wage workers like cooks, housekeepers, and cashiers were disproportionately displaced from the labor market at the onset of the pandemic, according to the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis. In turn, local governments across the metro area instituted eviction moratoriums to prevent as many people as possible from losing their homes because of pandemic-induced job losses or work hour reductions. They also used federal funds to dramatically expand rental assistance programs. And some counties, like Denver, created eviction legal defense programs for renters. Over the past three years, lawmakers in the General Assembly have also passed a wide range of progressive-style bills that prohibit source-of-income discrimination by landlords, housing discrimination based on someone's hair type, and gave tenants more power to address issues in their rental contracts. So why do some renters say these efforts haven't been enough? Hoffman said one reason is that the programs that lawmakers have created are not large enough to meet the scale of need. For example, Denver has its own eviction defense program, but there were still more than 1,200 evictions filed in May, which is 35% higher than the number recorded in May of 2019 before the pandemic began, Denver Wright reported. However, Denver only spends about $1.5 million annually on its eviction program a total that has remained stagnant over the last two years, according to city budget documents. Hoffman added that lawmakers have also failed to pass legislation that directly addresses some of the tenant organization's concerns, like requiring just cause in an eviction case. The bill sought to limit the instances where a landlord could legally evict the tenant, but was ultimately laid over before the last legislative session ended. Eighteen anti-poverty organizations, including the ACLU of Colorado, Colorado Poverty Law Project, and the Colorado Village Collaborative, penned a letter asking newly elected Denver Mayor Mike Johnston to implement many of the requirements of the Just Cause Eviction Bill, such as ending evictions for unpaid rent and increasing funding for eviction legal defense programs. These organizations also called on Johnston to increase eviction defense funding by up to $10 million annually. There's a real lack of trust, and we're starting from less than zero on many of these issues. Melissa Meha, the state and local policy director for the Community Economic Defense Project, a nonprofit that also signed the letter to Johnston, told Denver Voice in an interview. Another issue that Hoffman said needs to be addressed is Colorado's ban on rent control, which stems from the 2000 Colorado Supreme Court decision in Town of Telluride v. Lot 34 Venture, LLC, also known as the Telluride decision. Lawmakers introduced a bill during the 2023 legislative session that sought to repeal local rent control prohibitions, but the bill was subsequently laid over after a strong lobbying effort from groups like the Associated Buyers and Contractors of the Rocky Mountains, the Colorado Apartment Association, and the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, according to the Colorado Secretary of State's office. While the disconnect between renters and lawmakers has some tenants taking matters into their own hands by organizing, it also has pitted some tenants against their landlords in the courtroom. In early June, five tenants filed a class action lawsuit against Shetter-Soltzer PC, a law firm in Denver that specializes in eviction cases. Each plaintiff describes situations where they were charged attorney's fees and costs by the law firm after it represented their landlords in eviction cases against the plaintiffs for non-payment of rent. Carol Kennedy, an attorney with the Colorado Poverty Law Project who is representing the plaintiffs, told Denver Voice that Colorado law prohibits these fees from being assessed in cases that are settled out of court, as each of the class action plaintiffs did. The lawsuit also represents an urgent question for lawmakers about how they will enforce new laws aimed at protecting renters as debates about tenant rights spill over into the next legislative session. This is just an effort to enforce the laws as they are currently written and make the system work in the way that it's supposed to work, Kennedy said. Kenzie Hasted, the senior state and local policy program director at Enterprise Community Fund told Denver Voice that she sympathizes with the frustration of renters because the past few years have been a decidedly mixed bag in terms of policy. Hasted said renters can take some solace in the fact that tenants' rights and affordable housing issues will remain the top issue for state lawmakers for the foreseeable future. There is also a growing coalition of lawmakers under the Gold Dome that seem committed to prioritizing those issues, she said. It used to be that you couldn't get anyone to talk about affordable housing, but now no one can stop talking about it, Hasted said. People are running on it, and they're telling their constituents about it. Affordable housing and renters' rights issues aren't going anywhere. The next two articles are from Denverite. Meet the Denver Animal Shelter's first social worker. Her job is to help people keep their pets well cared for and at home by Isaac Vargas. While on a walk with the Denver Animal Shelter's longest tenured resident, Spot the Dog, Josie Pigeon notes that she's allergic to cats. Sinus infections, itchy eyes, and a runny nose are common for her if she forgets to take her allergy medication. It was a lot worse when I was cleaning ken- kennels, Pigeon says. It's just a mild annoyance if I'm around cats for a little too long. Pigeon is the Denver Animal Shelter's first social worker. As the city deals with a spike in surrendered pets, the shelter has hired her to help owners keep their pets out of the shelter, off the streets, and in their homes. Pets are a great support to us, Pigeon said. They're going to offer that unconditional love that a lot of individuals just aren't going to find anywhere else. Then, in the long term, caring for your pet helps you care for yourself. Pigeon moved from Arkansas to Colorado specifically for the University of Denver's Animal Assisted Social Work Master's Certificate. When she started the master's program, she wanted to be an animal assisted therapist, but her interest in big picture human-animal issues and social systems led her to pursue a job at the intersection of animal welfare and social work. Growing up in a state like Arkansas that largely banned pit bulls, has been her main motivation for going into animal welfare. I came from a very different place where individuals still see animals as property protectors that live outside, Pigeon said. If you were going to study animal sciences in Arkansas, you were studying livestock and poultry. Pigeon graduated from DU during the pandemic, and there wasn't a job that fit her education at the time. She worked as an animal care technician for the Adams County Riverdale Animal Shelter. There she met Cory, a three-year-old deaf pit bull. My absolute favorite child, Pigeon said. He got so excited when he was finally able to understand what people wanted from him. I loved him so much. Corey landed at Riverdale through the Families in Transition Program, FIT, that provides temporary care for pets of families in crisis due to homelessness, illness, and domestic violence. While at the shelter, Pigeon worked closely with Corey, teaching him how to communicate via hand signals and gently shaking the kennel door so Corey could feel her arrival. When they're deaf, they don't really know what's going on around them, Pigeon said. He would get woken up and think he was in danger. Corey's family was never able to come back for him, and despite several failed adoption attempts, Corey kept returning to the shelter for accidentally biting people when they tried waking him up. Tragically, Corey na- never made it out. He had been in the shelter a little too long, Pigeon said. Pigeon has spent time getting a lay of the land in her new role since joining the DAS Community Engagement Services team on July 31st. We all know that there's a housing crisis in Denver, Marissa Vasquez said, DAS Manager of Community Engagement. Our program is informed about by what we are hearing from the community. They don't just need things for their animals. They might need things for themselves. Pigeon will join a team of community navigators who go out into the community in search of those who need support, most often the unhoused, seniors, and people with disabilities. Through door-to-door outreach, community events, and referrals from outside organizations, Pigeon will work to identify resources for both pets and people. These resources might include free and low-cost pet medical services, supplies, food, leashes, grooming, grooming, social service agencies, food banks, and other community groups. A lot of what I've been doing is thinking about what this position could be in planning for the future of what we want it to turn into, Pigeon said. Aside from the resource side of things, Pigeon will also undertake the responsibility of offering mental health support for shelter staff and volunteers. It's such a niche experience to have to deal with people surrendering their pets, euthanasia, and the traumatic things you see in the field, Pigeon said. One of the main reasons that I'm excited for, having worked in an animal shelter before, is for our staff members to have someone who has a mental health background. I've seen it firsthand, and I'm right there with them. Although she won't work as a full-time therapist, Pigeon will assist DAS workers debriefing difficult situations, teaching coping skills, and connecting workers to mental health services. According to Vasquez, housing and the costs of animal training are often what leads to the surrender of a pet in their shelters. People get a dog, have the best intentions, but don't realize all of the training needs that they might have. Vasquez said. A lot of training resources are really expensive, and not everyone can afford that, so oftentimes that's how the dogs end up back in a shelter. In order to avoid the carousel of resources that get tossed around, Pigeon will be an internal referrer for the Denver Human Services Agency, meaning she will be able to connect people directly to a city caseworker. A lot of what I will be doing is reaching out to the organizations that I'm connecting them to and making it a little bit more personalized, instead of just saying to someone, here's the place, call them. We try to bring a lot of those services in-house. Instead of relying on external vet partners, Vasquez added, we are able to refer them to our internal vet clinic. We have a volunteer groomer. We'd like to build up as much internal knowledge and resources as we can so that we're not so reliant on a handoff. The Community Engagement Services team has helped spay and neuter more than 3,500 animals. DAS has also helped pay for necessary veterinary services, including vaccines, microchips, mass removals, dental procedures, and medical grooming. Over 150 animals are on a wait list to receive these free services. For Pigeon, social work and animal welfare go hand-in-hand because social issues that affect an owner also affect the pet. Food, housing insecurity, gaps in education, and threats to violence all play a role in a pet's housing future. If Corey's family had had more access to resources to find housing, he would have lived a healthy and happy life, Pigeon said. If we had someone in my position, he might not have had to be adopted out at all and then he wouldn't have accidentally bit anyone. He could have gone right back home lived with his family and he would have had a happy story. This affordable health center just expanded its dental pharmacy offerings. Now it wants to show it off with a block party. By Desiree Matherin. Down a long stretch of hallway lies colorful comfy chairs the walls are adorned with equally colorful artwork made from the hands of local community leaders and artists. Hummingbirds, bison, and aunties gathered round the river. Sounds inviting, right? Inclusive. Those are the core values of Tepeyac Community Health Center, and it's only fitting that their new location at 2101 East 48th Avenue represents those values. Tepeyac is celebrating its grand opening of the space on Saturday inviting nearby neighbors, community members, those interested in health needs, or just those looking to recognize the path the center took to get to this spot. Tepiak opened in 1995 under the name Clinica Tepiak in an 800-square-foot space on Calamus Street in the Highland neighborhood with just two exam rooms. That increased to 10 rooms when it moved to a 6,000-square-foot space on Lincoln in Globeville. One room was reserved for a dentist, one space was reserved for behavioral health, but sometimes it got used for other medical needs. Now, Tepeyac lives at the base of the Vina Apartments in El Riasuancia. The 10 rooms are still there, in one wing of the facility, plus 10 more in an adjacent wing, plus more. The new space has quadrupled in size to about 24,500 square feet. The one dental chair has turned into a dental suite, with six additional chairs, an x-ray space, and two procedure rooms. The expansion was a major ask from community members. It's one of the most transformational spaces, said Kristen Weber, director of major gifts for TEPIAC. It allows us to offer much more expanded services. Dental director Dr. Bridget Reming echoed Weber's sentiment. With the bigger space, the staff has gone from one dentist and one dental assistant to a team of 11, with two dentists and another coming in October. Reming said that this increase allows the dental staff to reach additional patients and also motivate patients to come in for more than just aches and pains. It's a lot about making people feel that they are deserving of coming in for more than just pain. You deserve a smile that you're proud of, Reming said. The new suite is also allowing new patients to come in solely for dental services. Before, Reming said there was a prerequisite that all dental patients needed to be part of the TEPIAC system, meaning they had to have received medical care from the clinic. Now the dental program is available to anyone. I hope we can continue to be a resource for patients for them to get all of their dental needs, Reming said, to continue to grow our dental services and really not have to have our care be different from care that you would receive anywhere else we want to be people's choice no matter who you are another major addition to the clinic is the pharmacy the biggest need and want in the area according to Google Maps the nearest pharmacy is a Walgreens on Colorado Boulevard a 10-minute drive or a 44-minute walk from the center when we talk about barriers to care that's a significant one Weber said In our survey about growing and asking what members felt was a need, this was always at the top of the list. It's certainly convenient for the patients. It's absolutely helpful for the providers and it really does increase patient access. The access is twofold. There's convenience and also pricing. Tepiak is a federally qualified health center and that allows the center to offer sliding scale discounts for medication, said pharmacy manager Arcadia Shani Derman. to qualify folks must be a patient of Tepiak and be below 200 percent of the federal poverty level for a family of four that's an annual income of fifty five thousand five hundred dollars it's the wow factor patients come to the register and they have anxiety and they're scared about the fact that they may not be able to afford their medication or they may have to take steps in order to get their medication Then you show them the prices, and it's $5, $10, and they say, wow, Schneiderman said. The pharmacy is available to anyone, but to qualify for discounted medications, folks have to be a Tepeyac patient. Besides these two major needs, the center also boasts a new mental and behavioral health wing, which will allow for more group therapy sessions and other forms of therapy, such as art therapy and healing circles. There's a larger medical imagery wing for ultrasounds and x-rays and a bigger lab space. Oh, and the new artwork is from locals, including Dan Luna and Arturo Garcia. On Saturday from 1 to 4 p.m., folks can check out the new space and also have their insurance and provider questions answered. The event will start off with Aztec dancers and a group ribbon-cutting ceremony. There will also be free food and activities it's just another way for tepiak to give back to a community they've served for about twenty eight years were built by the community and for the community Weber said the following articles are from westward here for the kids moves on from colorado and white women by benjamin Newfeld. in the three months since the here for the kids movement got one thousand or so white women and national media outlets such as CNN and the Washington Post to cover its protest efforts at the Colorado State Capitol on June 5th, the organization has been lying low. As of September 5th, however, the group is back with new goals and an updated strategy. But don't worry, Governor Jared Polis, the organizers have decided to leave Colorado behind. The group plans to keep working to ban guns, but says it will now take on the climate crisis, too, on the national stage. It's also dropping its white woman-focused strategy as it expands those horizons with the ultimate hope of sending a quarter of a million people to Washington, D.C. in March of 2024 to demand that President Joe Biden ban both guns and fossil fuels. H4TK was created by Sarah Rao, a former Colorado congressional candidate and a co-author of White Women, Everything You Already Know About Your Own Racism and How to Do Better, back in March after a school shooting was reported in Nashville. Rao, who is Indian American, became something of a shepherd for white women after her unsuccessful run against U.S. Representative Diana DeGette in the Democratic primary for Colorado's first congressional district in 2018. She and Regina Jackson, who worked on Rao's campaign, began hosting dinner parties with groups of liberal white women in order to confront them about their implicit racism and complicity in white supremacy, she says. That activity grew into a movement called Race to Dinner, with Rao and Jackson charging a few thousand dollars per guest for the dinners, which typically sold out. A documentary about the movement, Deconstructing Karen, was shown to a sold-out crowd at the Sea Film Center in March. Through H4TK, Rao, along with the group's other leader, Tina Strawn, hoped to organize a mass movement of white women under the leadership of women who aren't white, to use the political influence granted to them by their sex and skin color to pressure state leaders into banning guns and buying them back. The vision started as a state-by-state approach, First, thousands of white women would arrive on the lawn of the Colorado Capitol and request that Governor Polis sign an executive order enacting their demands. Critics such as the gun lobby group Rocky Mountain Gun Owners were skeptical of the goal, but RMGO Executive Director Taylor Rhodes admitted that if they turn out 25,000, as they claim they're going to, maybe that changes things. Following its success, H4TK would move on to another state, and then another, until eventually the whole country was gun-free. Despite the group's best efforts, H4TKs only managed to turn out hundreds, not thousands, of white women for their June 5th protests, and Polis did not ban guns. The movement has not held any more protests in any other states since. Other than some social media posts, H4TKs have been mostly quiet. We've spent the last three months in a place of rest, repair, and restructure, Strawn says. Really, it was a matter of the core leadership team, Zyra, myself, and the others who have been leading this work, just regrouping and preparing for what will happen next. We hosted a few of what we call grievance sessions, where we invited folks to come and basically give us feedback. We sent out both internal and external surveys to get folks' feedback on how they felt things were going overall. Strawn adds, we received hundreds of responses back. The main grievance people had was communication, she says. The June 5th protest was meant to last from June 5th to June 7th, but some people weren't clear on the start and end times of the second two days of the demonstrations, according to Strawn. Additionally, the organizers asked only straight, non-disabled white women to show up as a matter of safety in getting their point across. Since things went well, everyone was invited on day two, though some people didn't get the message. Communication was also unclear as it related to when Sarah, Sarah and I made the decision that we would show up and we would open it to the marginalized communities, Strawn notes. After working through those issues, Herefore, the kids' leaders began planning their next move. There are two existential threats and crises that we are facing in terms of the future of not only our children and not only the nation, but all of humanity, Strawn says. And those existential crises are two things. Guns, as guns are the number one killer of kids and teenagers in the United States, and also climate catastrophe. And so we are combining those two she adds we feel that we have run out of time to continue to listen to endless debates we've run out of time to hope that legislators do anything to affect change with guns or with the cl- climate crisis and so we have created a two-pronged approach in a much larger scale action that action will be carried out on march 9 2024 we are asking 250,000 people to show up at the Capitol in Washington DC Strawn says we are going to the one person who has the power to affect both of these crises and that is President Joe Biden Strawn acknowledges that that's a big goal especially when only a fraction of the 25,000 white women they had hoped to bring to Denver on June 5th actually showed up no we did not get 25,000 white women to show up in Denver And no, we did not succeed in having Governor Polis sign an executive order to ban guns, she says. The way that we measured success is that we were able to mobilize people to take action, to move from inactivity and indifference to hope. To meet its new goals, Here for the Kids is expanding from white women to everyone. We fell short of that goal in Denver by just keeping the ask to a very specific demographic of cisgender, non-disabled white women, and we feel confident that by opening up to everyone, that is automatically going to give us a much greater chance of hitting our goal," Strawn notes. She says that organizers will be running an aggressive social media campaign between now and March 9th to help promote everything. As for dropping the state-by-state strategy, Strawn says it was a scheduling issue. We don't feel like there's time, she says, of visiting different states. However, the group hopes to eventually organize regional rallies along with the big one in DC. To help do this, H4TKs is also asking for donations. We are needing $3.5 million to make this happen, Strawn says. When we look at how much it costs to ban abortions, it's in the billions. We recognize that to have these actions take place in about 6 months, it's going to take a lot of money. So we're currently reaching out to our supporters and asking them to partner with us. Do anything from contributing $5 a month, $25 a month, whatever they can do. While the group is dropping its focus on using white women to advance its cause, Strawn says its message will still be loud and clear. I think what's important is that we continue with our message that the reason we are in a state of emergency where kids are dying at the hands of guns and our entire planet is overheating is due to white supremacy, colonialism, and capitalism, she concludes. Group Pushing Denver Nightmare Changing Its Name, Diving Into Safety Solutions by Katie Cheshire The 87 Foundation, a group formed to preserve the Mile High City's cultural identity and vibrant nightlife scene through a Nightmare approach, is currently in the process of changing its name to One Denver. But it's not just a new moniker that's being rolled out. The group is also working to dive into more safety solutions for local revelers and establishments by commissioning research to gather data on the current state of Denver's nighttime economy. One Denver has contracted the Responsible Hospitality Institute to conduct a landscape assessment. One Denver is raising money to fund the study, which will cost an estimated $250,000 and take 18 months to complete. The money will also go toward programming and coordinating solutions in the meantime. We don't want our survey of the communities to be entirely extractive, says Stephen Brackett, executive director of One Denver and founding member of the band Flowbots and nonprofit group Youth on Record. At the same time that we're trying to ask people how they want to celebrate their time in the city, we want to actually be able to have activations like cookouts. Other ideas that have been floated include small concerts in neighborhoods where people would get to enjoy themselves while sharing their vision for nightlife in the city. One Denver wants to strengthen the conversation not reinvented. The bars and the venues and all those places are deeply embedded stakeholders who have a direct interest in everything being much much safer, Brackett says. They already are spending a lot of time and effort in working with neighborhood associations and working with local police and trying to find solutions and all these things. One stands for Office of Nighttime Economy, the heads of which are sometimes colloquially dubbed Nightmare. Such a person and office would be in charge of coordinating the city's activities outside of traditional government hours, from bars and nightlife to childcare and transportation options for those who work late shifts. Brackett has been talking with people across Denver about the idea. This is one of the things a lot of folks aren't thinking about, Brackett says. There's even the possibility that the gap is so pervasive that it's almost invisible. That means so many of us are totally unaware. When discussing the issue, he typically asks people to think of a place teenagers can go at night. When they can't, Brackett points out that there could be a solution if we actually recognize the problem. Once people identify the issue, they always question how it can be solved, he says. Then there are the times when the gap is uncomfortably visible. That happened in July of 2022, when Denver Police Department officers fired their weapons into a crowd outside Larimer Beer Hall at the intersection of 20th and Larimer Streets, where Lodo meets the Ballpark neighborhood. The cops were confronting Jordan Waddy, a 23-year-old club goer with a gun who'd been in an altercation that night. Three officers fired their weapons into the crowd, injuring six bystanders and Waddy, who never fired his gun. A grand jury later decided to indict one of the officers, Brandon Ramos, who is scheduled to be arraigned on September 8th. Wadi is scheduled for a jury trial in November. On August 17th, the DPD responded to a shooting at 22nd and Welton streets where one man had been shot and was later pronounced dead at the hospital. Preliminary investigation indicates the incident began as an altercation that resulted in the shooting the DPD reported on August 30th. Through the course of the investigation, detectives identified Quadre Lamb as a suspect. Lamb was arrested on August 29th and is being held for investigation of first-degree murder, according to police. On August 19th, two people were killed in a triple shooting at 28th and Welton Streets. The DPD has identified Tyrell Braxton as a suspect in that incident, but he has not been arrested. Police are asking those with information to contact Crime Stoppers at 720-913-7867 or visit MetroDenverCrimestoppers.com. These crimes represent the 4th, 5th, and 6th incidents where police were dispatched for possible murder in downtown Denver this year. By and large, people don't die when they go downtown, but killings certainly capture the most attention. In my life as an educator, almost all of my days in class, there were no fights, Brackett says. But when there is, it has a way of casting a pall over that classroom for a while, and I don't think that that's unfair. Until we're able to change the narrative or take control over what the work looks like, the only thing that you hear about nighttime economy are the deficits, how this isn't safe, how this isn't working, regardless of how many days we have been safe. One Denver wants to move past the worries and continue to focus on solutions, Brackett says. For example, he notes how evidence shows that activation of a larger diversity of activities and groups in a downtown area can limit these outlying incidents. But how do we get there? That's what the city is pondering now. In Mayor Mike Johnston's vibrant Denver Transition Committee for Arts and Venues, which Brackett co-chaired, the group considered the prospect of a nightmare. There was encouragement and openness to pursue this possibility, but many were not familiar with this type of role," the committee's final memo concurred on August 8. It suggested bringing together stakeholders to get a sense of what is needed and clarifying confusion around the term nightmare itself, as well as pointing out that it needs to be clear that an office of nighttime economy should not create more bureaucratic obstacles A lot of it's just general confusion, Brackett says. They've heard the words nightmare, and they're like, what, we're gonna have another election? It's just the sexy title. It's just a mayoral appointment for somebody who's overseeing nighttime economy. Other times, Brackett says people will think it's just about bars, which isn't the case. Rather, inefficiencies in how the economy is coordinated and looked at during nighttime hours are causing quality-of-life deficits, he explains. A lot of times I'll talk to people and I'll say how taxes work in such a way that our taxes go toward the creation and the ongoing maintenance of services that make our lives easier, Brackett says. For people who are literally working at night, most of those services are not available. So they're paying into a tax fund that doesn't actually work for them unless they're able to take a day off. Ideas like coordinating with parks and recreation, libraries, and other businesses would be on the table for an office of nighttime economy. Brackett has met with Johnston about the idea. One of Mayor Johnston's priorities is to invest in downtown Denver to bring about economic revitalization and make our city center a place where people truly want to live, work, and play every day, Johnston's spokesperson Jordan Fuha says. The mayor continues to meet with community partners and city staff to identify the best ways to make the vision of a vibrant downtown a reality. And this focus will be reflected in the upcoming 2024 budget priorities. Fuha points out that the city's work to invest in the downtown area, like studies identifying adaptive reuse options for office buildings and funding for growth in Denver businesses, show that Johnston is on board with investing in life downtown. Bracket invites interested parties to get involved. What I've seen data-wise is that there's a lot of hidden levers that we haven't even revealed, he says, that could actually make life in this city safer, more fun, and just more efficient. GA20 makes old school blues with a modern twist by Justin Criado. Matthew Stubbs, the longtime guitarist for blues, blues legend Charlie Musselwhite, and founder of blues rock trio GA-20, seemed destined to make his mark on the genre. He fell in love with the music when he was a teenager growing up in southern New Hampshire, which is not exactly the stereotypical place to grow up playing blues, as he sees it. While the New England state is more known for its role in the American Revolution than as an epicenter of the blues, Stubbs credits his father, a guitarist and band leader himself, for exposing him to the music that it would eventually become his livelihood. They would do band practice at the house or gigs on weekends so I was exposed to live music my whole life, Stubbs shares, adding that guitar legend Jimi Hendrix served as his gateway into the blues before he fully immersed himself in the music's history of badass axemen. By the age of 15, for whatever reason, the blues spoke to me And I started digging in and going further back from Hendrix, he continues. I got into Buddy Guy, Albert King, Johnny Guitar Watson, Ike Turner, and Earl Hooker. From then on, he would form and play in bands that were rooted in blues, rock, and psychedelia. After landing in L.A., Stubbs became the lead guitar player in Muscle White's group 16 years ago through a mutual musician friend. It scared the crap out of me, he says, of his playing on that initial tour with Muscle White, but luckily it was good enough to keep the gig. Keeping company with Muscle White has proved to be a one-of-a-kind experience in education for Stubbs, as the elder bluesman has rubbed shoulders and played with many of the musicians Stubbs considers beyond human. I've been with him 16 years, traveling around the world in vans and airplanes, and every time I hang out with him, I hear a new story from back in the day in Chicago or San Francisco with all these legendary people like John Lee Hooker or Magic Sam, he explains. It blows my mind overall where all this music I grew up listening to was in the 50s and 60s, and most of them I didn't get to see. So they're larger than life characters to me. But Muscle White, very matter of factly, will just talk about them like it's no different than me sitting there with Charlie. He sat there with those guys. He did gigs with those guys. He's just like, oh, I was drinking with Magic Sam, Stubbs continues. It's crazy how he'd just hang out with these legendary people in clubs in Chicago. But as much as he's a blues fan, Stubbs is also making his own mark on the longstanding style with GA-20. He formed a band in 2018 when he found himself with a year off while Muscle White worked and toured with Ben Harper initially GA 20 was a way for Stubbs to pay the bills by gigging around the New England area we got a gig every Wednesday at the little wine bar no one listened to us he says with a laugh after winning a day of recording at Boston's Q division studios through a silent auction GA 20 recorded an EP and shopped it around the labels coal mine records of Loveland Ohio signed the trio and put out its debut album Lonely Soul in 2019. The record debuted at number two on the Billboard Blues chart and GA20 with singer-guitarist Pat Fardy and drummer Tim Carman had officially arrived. Every one of the band's releases has climbed to the second or top spot on the chart including last year's Crackdown and GA20 Live in Loveland earlier this year. Stubbs admits he was shocked when Lonely Soul did so well, and it just snowballed from there. I still consider us a blues band, he says, but as we toured and wrote other songs, we let some other influences get in there, such as Country. Check out GA20's cover of Dolly Parton's Jolene and Garage Rock. We do play traditional blues, he adds, but when you see the show, it's definitely a rock and roll show. And that's what fans will experience when GA20 takes over the Skylark Lounge on Wednesday, September 13th with Root Beer, Ritchie, and the Reveille. The band's penchant for using vintage equipment only adds to GA20's authentic blues sound. Even the name GA20 is a reference to a classic Gibson amp. Plus, I can just go get an old 60s basement amp and it's half the price, says Stubbs, who currently wields a water slide T-style think Telecaster, guitar with gold foil pickups. With two guitarists and no bassist, something that makes GA-20 more of a beefed-up power trio than anything else, using two amps helps push more air as a trio and fill the room, Stubbs says. These days, blues kind of has a different reputation, he adds, but the music of GA-20 is far from depressing. Half the time, we don't even know what we're playing, he admits. We're trying to write songs and melodies. It's not all about self-indulgent 10-minute guitar solos, though he and Fardy can do that, too. There's songs we open up, and you never know what's going to happen, he concludes. Every night is different. We want it to be an experience. GA 20, 7 p.m., Wednesday, September 13th, Skylark Lounge, 140 South Broadway. Tickets are 19 to $20. The Minutes reveals the dark underbelly of small town politics at Curious Theater by Tony Tresca. Curious Theater Company's epic 26th season kicks off with a roller coaster of political satire and dark humor in its regional premiere of Tracy Letts's Broadway hit, The Minutes. This season is also the company's first since 1997 without founders Chip Walton and Dee Covington but the upcoming production signifies that Curious remains true to its mission of producing thought-provoking, challenging, and socially relevant plays. At Curious, we aim to produce challenging new plays from exciting voices in contemporary theater, plays you are unlikely to see anywhere else, says Jada Suzanne Dixon, who took over as artistic director in 2022. The Minutes is a standout script straight from Broadway and one of America's best playwrights, the amazing Tracy Letts. This play allowed us an opportunity to highlight the skills and artistry of our artistic company members both on and off the stage. The Minutes is hilarious until it's not, and we can't wait to share it. The Minutes transports audiences to a city council meeting in the fictional town of Big Cherry, revealing the secrets and absurdities that lurk between the surface of seemingly peaceful communities According to director Christy montour Larson, Curious has had its eye on the play since its, its success at Chicago's Steppenwolf Theater in 2017, for which it received a Pulitzer Prize nomination. When the Curious Literary Committee read Letz's play for the first time, it immediately ticked a lot of boxes, montour Larson says. The play addressed these very current contemporary, socially and politically charged issues particularly what it means to be an American. It's funny. Anyone who has ever scratched their heads over how government works will relate to the hilarious antics of these city council members, she concludes, and it's very thought-provoking. The play raises weighty questions about who writes history, which stories get told, and what kind of community do we want to live in. The Minutes has all my favorite elements of a great night out at the theater. Curious Theater is pleased to present the play locally after its Tony Award-nominated production in New York in 2022. The play's thematic depth and dark humor remind Montour Larson of Jordan Peele's skillful blend of humor and social commentary in movies such as Get Out. It pokes at the right and the left, but it ultimately has a darker message about society underneath, Montour Larson explains. The Minutes also has shades of Shirley Jackson's The Lottery, Arthur Miller's The Crucible, Ibsen's An Enemy of the People, and the ending has a bit of Rosemary's Baby. The production uses an ensemble cast of curious favorites, showcasing the talents of 17 of its artistic company members both on and off the stage. With this being the largest cast in our history, We can't wait to get this amazing cast of the Minutes in front of audiences, Dixon says. The spirit and camaraderie in the rehearsal room is infectious, and to follow this big, audacious show with a more subtle, poetic play really allows us to show the stunning breadth of new work happening in theater now. Actors Michael McNeil, Mayor Superba, and Karen Slack, Ms. Matz, have had a blast working on the comedic elements within the script. Curious doesn't do a lot of comedies, but we have some very funny people in the artistic company, so we have all really enjoyed the humor," McNeil says. The company also adores Tracy Letts. His play, Bug, was my first performance at Curious. Tracy is familiar with writing in a way that makes the material simple for actors to perform, because he's also an actor. The mayor is not exactly funny, He is so engrossed in the meeting minutes and surrounded by people who take even the most insignificant things very seriously. Christie's advice on status and not participating in other people's drama has been beneficial. As an actor, you frequently accept the reality that others present to you. However, because my character has influence, I frequently refrain from getting involved in trivial disputes. Slack says her character is very different from Mayor Superba. In terms of status, Ms. Matz is one of the lowest in the show, she says. I adore the freedom that comes with playing a role like this and working with a capable director like Christy, who knows how to help us as actors understand the reality and stakes of this world. Since The Minutes is a 90-minute, one-act play that takes place during a city council meeting, Montour Larson and scenic designer Marcus Henry did extensive research on actual chamber halls in American cities, to ensure the set felt authentic. And for those who have attended a Denver City Council meeting, be on the lookout for nods to the building, as the team notes there are details from its architecture and layout integrated into the minutes set. For government employees, there's a special treat, a discount that acknowledges the humor and gravity of public service. Finally, somebody wrote a play for them, jokes Montour Larson. If you have a city or federal government badge, you get a 20% discount. There'll also be a teen night with a post-show conversation on September 15th. I always look forward to teen night, Slack says. I find that inspiring young people want to get involved in theater and it's incredibly important because we want to breed a whole new generation of theater makers and attendees. Tickets for the minutes are selling quickly according to the Curious Box Office which is a sign that audiences are eager to catch the premiere of the company's 26th season. During the pandemic, theaters were some of the first to shut down and some of the last to come back, Montour Larson says. I believe the reason audiences have been slow to come back, not just in Denver but in general, is because theater going is a learned habit and people forgot how much they love it. A lot of places are doing really tiny shows right now, so it's impressive for Curious's board and staff to make a commitment to produce a large play with local artists. The Minutes is going to be big, so I encourage you to get your tickets now. It would be sad if someone missed the chance to see this play because they waited too long to get a seat. The Minutes, Saturday, September 9th through Saturday, September 17th, Curious Theatre Company, 1080 Acoma Street. Tickets are available at curioustheater.org. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.